I dreamed I dwelt in marble halls, with vassals and serfs at my side, and all who assembled within those halls said I was their hope and their pride. But I also dreamed, which pleased me most, that I was still on the island of Brilliant, with a pile of good books and some hot buttered toast, and there really is nothing that rhymes with Brilliant. Oh, Frank! Who's this? Who's shaking me awake? Frank, wake up. Tell me, tell me, tell me. Frank, you've been face down in this pile of lint balls for two weeks now. <laughs> but I was so Come happy. On. Christmas is over. It's a new year. It's not that new. <laughs> no, it's we not were... that new. It's a bit worn in. Well, it's a good thing about our, the island of Brilliant is that brilliantly the new year doesn't start for a month. It's like a month off between years. <laughs> And then there's the new year. That's good. It is actually brilliant. But listen, remember, we've got a podcast to do. Okay. Come and stagger over to this hammock and let me give you... <sighs> uh, it's dry January, isn't it? So yeah, have a have yeah. a green juice. Okay, thank you very much. I don't much. know what's, what it's made of, just various yeah. mosses and some coconut water. Yeah. Oh, that's, an, oh, that's too oh, much. Not a green, green Haribo? Green fruit pastels, green yeah. fruit gums. Green M&Ms. Okay, breakfast of champions. I have told you that green is my favourite colour of all sweets. I remembered that in the old days, wine gums had the mm. name of the supposed wine embossed on each yeah, they, wine gum. Yes. So what were the green yeah, ones? Absinthe. <laughs> it was absinthe. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I've absinthe. I don't know. <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember. But I do remember feeling a bit daring eating wine gums with the name of, you yeah. know, alcoholic drinks yeah. on them. <laughs> Well, and then I'd have a candy cigarette. I had a candy I'd cigarette. I'd a little chuff on them. I had a little pouch of licorice tobacco, which is called Spanish gold. And then you could get chocolate heroin as well, which I think was <laughs> daring. In the 80s, when they marketed chocolate heroin at children. <laughs> <laughs> listeners, listeners, I'm, I'm joking. That's a terrible joke. I don't mean that. Take okay. it back. Okay. Um, <laughs> anywho. Anywho. While you've been passed out in a pile of lint balls, I've yeah. been reading. What have you been You'll reading? You'll be pleased to know. Trying to chip away at this pile. Well, have you noticed that my face is red and wet? Yes. I thought it was too polite to say From that. crying. Oh. <laughs> There's been a lot of crying going on. Not for any other reason. I've not been slapped in the face by that chimpanzee. That really angry chimpanzee <laughs> who comes around and slaps me. It's not, it's not red and wet for that reason. It's red and wet because I've been crying with emotions, Frank. Oh, no. I thought we didn't have those on the island. I've been trying to keep them at bay as best as I <laughs> can. But, um, but this book has brought them to the surface. Uh, it's called The Final Year by someone called Matt Goodfellow. Have you heard of this book, Frank? No, I've not heard anything about this book. So this book really surprised me and it's really original. And it's about a boy called Nate. Uh, he lives with his two brothers and his mum. And he lives, he's got quite a complicated life. Um, his mum's down the bingo most of the time. Nate is in charge of looking after his brothers, getting them dressed. He's in year five, he's got a best mate, P.S. And they find out that in year six, which is their final year of primary school, hence the title, he and P.S. are going to be separated. They're going to be in different forms. And this is um, really difficult for Nate. His home life is pretty uneven. So his friendship with P.S. is really important. The whole book, I should say, is written in verse. Oh, wow. Yeah, not necessarily rhyming verse, though there are moments where Nate, because he enjoys writing secretly, he does it all in secret, he secretly loves rhyming. He doesn't 
call them poems yet because mm-hmm. I don't think he can quite give that status to himself. But he enjoys rhyming, you know, about his family and about his friends. And so it starts out, yeah, we, we're just kind of with Nate when he starts year six. And it's pretty tricky. His best mate's no longer his best mate. He's got a great teacher who spots that Nate loves words. Nate spends his whole summer in the library. He's either playing FIFA or he's in the library. Right. Because they can't go on holiday anywhere. And he, he just wants some peace and quiet. He can't have books at home because they get wrecked by his little brother. So he spends all summer reading David Allman books. Right. And he, when he starts year six, the year six teacher's like, you should read Skellig. Have you read Skellig? So it's kind of, that's all going on. But at home, things are getting even more complicated. And there's a plot development that I won't ruin about two thirds through the book that is quite the gut punch. Mm-hmm. And um, it was from that moment that I began crying and I basically didn't stop for the rest of the book, but in, in the best way. It's a really exceptional book. But it doesn't surprise me to learn that Matt Goodfellow, yeah, he was a former primary school teacher. And you can really tell, because I think you can tell when someone's lived it. It's just, I've just not read anything like it. He gets the language so right. And then lots of heartbreak is kind of weaved in. The characters are three-dimensional. So even though Nate's mum, you know, you read between the lines and you learn about what a rough life she's had. Sometimes in books, when there's a parent who's maybe not present, either physically or mentally, Mm -hmm. they can be painted in broad brushstrokes. And with this, as much as she's not there mentally, there's no doubt that she loves them massively. And I think all that love and all that warmth it's just a huge thread throughout the book that I really picked up on because uh. I thought it's brilliant. You don't often see stories written about families who aren't the kind of 2.4 perfect, in inverted commas, family who've got cars and well-stocked fridges. You know, families who haven't got that are sometimes not given humanity and heart. And um, that was something that really struck me that I loved about this book. But there's a lot to love. There's a lot to love in it. Yeah, because families like that, it's often the problem that's the character. <laughs> rather than the yeah. people yeah, yeah. Do, you, do you want to re- this sounds amazing it is amazing I think it would be a fantastic class read for yeah for year sixes obviously it will resonate hugely it would also resonate if people want to read stuff about maybe kids who have a lot of responsibility yeah kids who are carers maybe not even official carers those kind of kids that kind of fall between the cracks here and there yeah i think young carers are the most invisible group in the country it's just yeah and and they're they're all every single one of them's a hero you know so that's their stories need Mm. to be told Mm. this sounds absolutely do you want to read a paragraph because it sounds like the language is something that might benefit from your lovely radio voice (laughs) of which we never hear enough (laughs) this is called bingo in mad If she's been at bingo with Auntie Sam, they'll both stumble through the front door. Mum always trips over the bikes, swears, giggles. Auntie Sam always goes, shh, you'll wake Nate up. Oh, hiya, Nate. Sorry, mate. Then they both come over all huggy and kissy, breathing smoky cider breath all over me, lipstick everywhere. To be honest, I don't mind, because they're always dead nice. Off they go into the kitchen, opening a bottle of something or the other. I drift off to sleep listening to the same stories about lost loves and bad luck, missed opportunities, near misses, the ghost of Jesus. Just one more number, San. That was all I needed. Wow, that's so good. Isn't that great? Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah. That line, the ghost of Jesus, Jesus is what Nate calls his dad, who he's never met, because apparently that's what he looked like, or he's got vague memories of this right. guy with long hair and a beard. And, yeah. and, and the sense that his mum's never really gone over him. So every now it's like, is Jesus there, you know? Oh, so good. yeah stro- I, I really th- it's, it's right up your alley Frank I think so no, I'd love it here you go Cat so, I'm going to chuck it over thank you very much who's it by again it's by it's Matt Goodfellow he sounds like a good fella I think he is what about you have you been oh you've not been reading well I've been mostly asleep <laughs> I've been reading a classic I've been reading I've been rereading Nation by Terry Pratchett for a thing oh, do you know that book I don't know it is it part it's not part of Discworld then it's it? not a Discworld book oh and it's not, I think Terry Pratchett is really underestimated as a children's writer. I think he wrote brilliant children's books, amazing children's books. Mm. Particularly, I love Truckers. Not read it. But, oh, Truckers. Oh, really? Well, you know I haven't read anything. That's the whole raison d'etre of this podcast, Frank. I'm going <laughs> to give you my well-worn copy of Truckers right now. Yay! Because it's about some gnomes. It's basically, listen to this for a concept. It's some gnomes that live in a great big department store. They're very fast moving. People can't see them. They're very tiny. <laughs> they live in a department store. But mm. the slogan of the department store is everything under one roof. And out of that slogan, they've evolved okay. this epistemology, which is that this is the world. Mm. This, is the cru- this is the universe. This is everything. So oh. there is nothing outside. Oh, wow. Then a small party of gnomes come in from outside. <laughs> And say, we used to live outside, and man, it's nice in here, but I've got to tell you, it's going to be demolished. We've seen this sign saying, everything must go. And they're like, yeah, yeah whatever. Obviously, that's delusional. So I mean, how relevant is that to now? I was going to say, this feels almost too on the nose as an allegory. Absolutely, like, but he wrote it. Amazing. I think it's, it's, like a ver- it's like a rewrite of the very first thing Terry Pratchett ever wrote. And it's, it's okay. from long ago. It's part of a trilogy called the Bromeliad. It's called the Bromeliad because mm-hmm. its central metaphor is these tiny frogs that live in Bromeliads. And you assume that the frog <laughs> thinks the Bromeliad is the world. And there's like a moment in it when one tiny frog gets to the top of a Bromeliad and sees the Amazon <laughs> <laughs> and thinks, oh my God, <laughs> we've been Amazing. limiting our options. <laughs> guys and it's so <laughs> there's more going on and it's weird because it's kind of weirdly dated now because of course we don't really have department stores so in truckers there are tribes yeah. like which are the haberdashery right. and the stationery <laughs> the home and garden <laughs> and they're all i love that it's so good i honestly think it's a towering towering masterpiece but nation is the book that he thought was his masterpiece terry pratchett thought this okay. was his masterpiece and it isn't as popular because it isn't part of any of those franchises. But it's an amazing book. It's sort of set in the age of discovery. Mm-hmm. And there's, I'm going to say, a kind of Oceania-type thing. Mm-hmm. And it's got its own culture. And then a huge ship, like a, a, a big British, like I'm going to say Captain Cook-type exploratory vessel, uh, is washed up. There's mm-hmm. a tsunami. Everything's washed away. And all that's left is this boy called Mao and a, a young woman from the, the scientific survey ship called Daphne. And they don't have a language in common. They don't have a culture in common. And they have to try and start communicating with each other and find out what's true. It's like you and me, Frank. Yeah. It is exactly that. But they try to communicate with each other and we just can't be bothered. Mm. We just glare at <laughs> <Wow>. each other. 
but they end up being really okay. nice to each other. So it gives me hope that one day we'll we'll learn to be nice <laughs> to each other. There's a lesson there. Yeah. Well, let's not hold our breath. been asleep there's stuff that we said we'd do i'm just looking behind you and you know that there was that tear in the space-time continuum just under that palm tree oh yeah that we said we would yes. fix that you no know, you said you were gonna fix it because oh, okay. i said do you want me to fix it and you said no you won't know what you're doing i'll fix the rip in the space-time continuum but you had the mastic <laughs> You had the gun thing. I'm not going down this road again. Well, anyway, it's definitely fine. got wider. And if you look in it... You're scared of using that polyfilled gun, well, I'm you? scared of it because who knows what is going to come out of that space-time continuum rip. Well, look, if I get the ladder and the polyfiller, do you want to get up? I'm really scared of it now because this thing's twinkling. There's stuff in there. Some terrible kind of light is shining out of the space-time continuum. Oh, come <sighs> on. Come on, let's go and have a look. You look. I don't want to look. Hang on. <laughs> Frank, do my eyes deceive me? It appears to be legendary author Christopher Edge hurtling towards us from within a rip in the space-time continuum. From Eccles. Stand back. <laughs> Christopher, is that you? It's all full of stars in there. <laughs> Where am I? How? What is this place? Come, higher, hi. It's I'm Nadia. Come, 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 come and sit down. Oh, thank you. Come and sit Thanks down. So this Hi. um, this is Frank. This Hi. is cowering man. Is Frank? Frank, come out. It's Christopher Edge. Okay. Christopher, was, how do you I, get how, how do you get from Eccles to a space time continuum? I was just walking down the street and suddenly, kind of like I was tugged in kind of like magnetic force, kind of t- oh. kind of tore me through a hole in the sky, and then I just landed here after some oh. Stargate esque journey through space and time, and and now I'm on this island, which looks oh. very lovely, by the way. Thank you. Oh, I hate it when that happens. Do you want a cup of tea? I'd love a cup of tea, thank you. Kit Kat, Twix, Maltesers or Mars Bar? I've got Kendall Mint Cake. <gasps> Kendall yes! Mint Cake? You've come from Eccles without an Eccles cake. I know. I'm, I'm, if it had organised a visit, I would have, you know, brought plenty, you know, Eccles cakes, you know, other northern treats, but no, Kendall Mint Cake was all I could grab okay. before the black hole got me. I'm well okay. happy with that. I love a bit of Kendall Mint Cake. Okay. Fran, be polite. Come I'm on, being polite. I'm just disappo- very disappointed before we start. <laughs> Very disappointed. Oh. What, because of the lack of Eccles cake? Lack I've of never Eccles had an Eccles cake. cake. Eccles. I don't know what they're like. Well, they are like the space-time continuum. They are. They have a black hole inside, and the outside oh, is God. all stars. You know, it's sugar on the outside and raisins oh. on the inside. So it's like, it is basically a black hole in a very, very, very short crust pastry. Kind of a flaky pastry. <laughs> that leads us nicely. Does, do, it, were you influenced by the Eccles cake when you came up for the concept behind Black Hole Cinema Club? Basically, yes. It was kind of like, you know, I, I, I'd long yeah. to see an episode of Celebrity British Bake Off with, you know, Stanley Kubrick <laughs> starring in it. Uh, yeah, probably. I kind of, I remember, Eccles cakes did loom large in my childhood. My, my mum used to home make them. So did home she? Home bake them, yeah. So often had an Eccles cake. Oh, well, obviously, I'm just being a clown. Um, Hi, properly. And congratulations on Black Hole Cinema Club, which I tore through. Do you want to tell us a bit about it? Yeah. yeah. For our listeners, kind of give us an overview of the book and what happens. So 
it starts with Lucas uh, meeting his friends at the local cinema. They're kind of going there for Saturday morning Black Hole Cinema Club, a kind of all-day movie marathon. They're quite excited, you know, non-stop action, mm. blockbuster special effects, all the snacks you can eat. As they settle down in the cinema, waiting for the film to begin, a mysterious message scrolls up the screen telling them that the end of the world is coming. And as the message fades, they suddenly see this jet black tidal wave come crashing out of the cinema screen and it sweeps them into an epic adventure. See, that's what I was waiting for when I sat in my cinema seat the day after reading your book. I was like, a black tidal wave's gonna sweep me up. It, I have to say, like, that, that your book, it just got me by the throat and it just doesn't let go, does it? It was amazing. I, I guess you wrote it to feel like this. You feel like you are in all of these different movie archetypes, but it also felt like I was in like a computer game. It was so, the action just slapped me around the face. It was brilliant. I did worry about that. I did worry about it. It's kind of like, you know, kind of like, I think Black Hole Cinema Club is that book because when they're swept into these movies, mm. they're not swept into the entire movie. They're perpetually no. falling into the climax every time of these different movies. So it makes the pace of the book a bit breakneck. And sometimes when I was like, I was worried, kind of, am I going to give my leader's chance to take a breath. But then I thought, no, <laughs> let's not do that. And Correct. it's just kind of like, yeah, they kind of crash through every film. So kind of- Yeah, it's just like, it's all the best bits. Well, someone said that about cinema. So, someone says cinema's like, like life with all the boring bits stripped out. So that's oh. kind of what I wanted to do, kind of like all the adventure, all the action. Yeah, it really does just hit the ground running, you know? You, what you do, there's definitely a Christopher Edge type of book, isn't there? Like physics is fun. They're all like thought experiments about reality. And I, f I find that really exciting. I can't think of anyone else who's doing what you're doing. So what's, how did you come to that? You're in a kind of uncharted territory, really. I think I found myself here by, by accident in a way because I was rubbish at science at school. <laughs> like I, I got a grade D in my GCSE physics. All I remember is kind of like rolling marbles down slopes or kind of boiling <laughs> slightly salty water. That's all I remember the science. Uh, life's about constant learning. So I kind of remember getting interested in things. I remember just reading this book about quantum physics. And I'm interested where science kind of meets philosophy. Yeah. And kind of like, so I always think that science and stories are both trying to do the same things. They're both kind of exploring the big questions about why we're here, what's our purpose and stuff. So I'll read something scientific and a story will just pop into my head. That's where that's a kind of starting point for me. Usually it's got a character attached, but yeah, it's a, it's a science that gives a spark in a way. Wow, I wish you'd been my physics teacher. Uh, I also was oh, rubbish no, at, well, I was rubbish at science and also struggled with physics. And I that did pop into my head when I was reading Black Hole Cinema Club because you know, you, you do you do discuss these ideas, you know, you, you brilliantly kind of make these I, these quite complicated ideas. You don't shy away from their complexity, but you translate them or you kind of explain them in a way that someone like me with a very unscientific brain, I could kind of get my head around it. I think it's because I've got a similarly unscientific brain, so I kind of have to mm. teach myself it in a, in a certain way because I'm never kind of using it to tell a story. It's because it's for the story to work. Yes. When I explain those aspects of it, it's it's always through the eyes of the character. And the characters in the books are usually, you know, mm. young children of 10, 11, 12, mm. 13 or whatever. 
So that it's their understanding that I'm kind of explaining after I've kind of spent weeks trying to fill it into my head kind of way. What is it about that age that you enjoy, like you obviously enjoy writing around that kind of age group? I remember talking to someone about the difference between children's and, and, and YA fiction. And I always think children's fiction, they're the leaders who are kind of still looking out at the world yeah. in wonder. Yeah. experiencing lots of the things for the first time and still having that kind of wide-eyed wonder about the world. Whereas I think when you get into YA, it's all much more internal. The, the eyes have kind of come down from the stars and maybe in, looking into other people's eyes maybe a bit more. So I love that worldview that mm. those younger leaders have. But they're also, they're the most difficult leaders to like for, I think. Yeah. Because you can't assume knowledge necessarily or mm. experience and things so it's a challenge lighting for them but i think it's maybe it's what i'm still at <clears> in my head i think a lot of the time mm. what were you like when you were that age do you remember what what were you reading and kind of or or were you i'm guessing you were have always been a big cineast a big film fan is that true or i yeah i remember going to i remember going to see empire strikes back at the cinema uh, which kind of came into when i was lighting the opening of black hole cinema club yeah. my brother I remember my older brother taking me to see E.T. It was a sold-out performance, and the only seats that were left on the very front row. So we sat there, kind of stunned by E.T., you know, kind of totally absorbed in the story with me every 20 minutes, saying to my brother, my neck aches. <laughs> so, yeah, I remember that. I remember going to... We had a local cinema called the Princess Cinema in Monton, which was like, you know, one of these one-screen wonder. So I remember going to see the Rocky trilogy there as well. And I don't know if I was taking to see George. I mean, George. Sorry, <laughs> my, my, my young cousin uh, had a very strong empathy when he saw the film Jaws and he used to call it George. So that's why I always call the film now. I because love he that thought so the shark much. Was he George. thought the shark was called George. Yeah. Have you remade the poster for him with the words George? I mean, with George oh, instead of Jaws. That. I would love to see that. That, that, that would be so, nice, wouldn't it? Yeah, that, that would be, would be a nice thing. thing to do. So, so as well as watching The Empire Strikes Back and E.T., were you, what kind of stuff were you reading? I was definitely a child built by my local library. I had a library around the corner where I lived, kind of like in mm. the shadow of this motorway underpass. And... So I remember getting loads of book out of the library. So I used to love, I was kind of an 80s child, so lots of Alan Garner, Susan Cooper, sort of like magic. But one of my favourites is the one called Thunder and Lightning. Oh, by Jan by Mark. Jan Mark, which is the only Jan Mark book I ever read. It was, it was a really important book for me as a child because it's about these two boys, Victor and Andrew. Uh, Andrew's moved to a new school meets this boy called Victor who he feels is rather strange but it's a lovely depiction and, and Victor is obsessed with lightning aircraft these are kind of RAF fighter jets but it's a lovely story about kind of it's about male friendship in a way because it's kind of lots of times I think for boys and for men friendships almost based around stuff yeah and these these two boys kind of build this friendship about around Victor's obsession with lightnings, but it's just a beautiful book, and that, that was one that really stayed with me. I have these books where I kind of read one book by the author, and if I, if I was an adult reader, I'd then go back and read everything by them. But as a child, they were just in the library, so you just got yeah, yeah, what you took off the shelf. So that was yeah. the only Jan Mark book I ever read, but yeah, it really stayed with me. So the P 38 Lightning, by the way, that's the plane that um, Antoine de Saint Exupery was flying when he went missing. 
Oh, wow. So he was testing it. That's a good fact. Yeah, isn't that weird? That's weird and also a bit of a downer, but no, that's weird. weird. (laughs) You mentioned Alan Garner, who's the other person who, he's obsessed with physics and quantum physics. And he's always looking at like quantum storytelling. He says, we write linear, we have very Newtonian stories where there's an action and then a consequence, but really, can you do quantum? So he's always looking at like the this time effect, that time. He was obsessed with sapphire and steel. I don't know if you remember sapphire and steel. I stole some. I, I, I subconsciously stole some from sapphire and steel from my novels, uh, kind of a, a book called The Infinite Lives of Maisie Day. Yes. Which starts with this girl waking up in the morning of the 10th birthday to discover the universe outside her front door has disappeared. Oh. And I'm certain that was influenced by the sapphire and steel scene of them opening the door and being in the middle of this void nowhere yeah i never knew alan garner loved sapphire and steel that's Loves amazing it. i bought him the sapphire and steel album an annual for christmas one year. <laughs> oh, wow. yeah so we always talk about other book influences but there are influences from elsewhere as well you know so part of that hectic pace that you've got and that kind of switchback ride that do you game do you play are you a gamer not a huge gamer kind of like during lockdown my daughter and I kind of played the, the Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Cause it was right. kind of like, it was, you know, you, you're only allowed about, you know, 10 minutes from your local area to go for the walk, weren't you, back then? Yeah. But then, yeah. but we, that didn't count when you're in Hyrule. You could actually go on a horse and go quite far <laughs> and battle monsters and stuff. So I, I loved that. I, I, I loved it a bit. I was a kind of the 80s generation where we all convinced our parents that if they bought the computer, it was for purely educational oh it's reasons. like you're looking in it's like you're looking into my soul christopher <laughs> i can hear myself now saying to my mum and dad no but the amiga will really help me with my stallwork amiga or atari that was the great decision oh that's the thing well because I, I missed out cause, because i was so convincing in making that educational argument that, that i actually got a bbc micro which oh, although yes. they were in every school were not the most exciting gaming wise so it didn't have the kind of manic minor jet set willy of kind of the zx spectrum but it did have this no but you could play a tape for an hour and eventually play frogger <laughs> exactly yeah 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 i remember trying to program mode 10 and trying to make a triangle and make it flash in different colours. I was like, yes! That was the beginning and ending of my <laughs> computer programming career. Yes. I didn't go very far. Line 10, print, Chris. Line yeah, 20, exactly. again. <laughs> exactly. So you were kind of coding when you played those games? Kind of. I think, you, I think 80s computer games, your imagination had to do a lot of work <laughs> you know, to make these sprites that were on the screen. Kind of. Uh, that was actually my first experience of The Hobbit as well was not via the book, it was via the, the computer game. Computer game. And, and the computer game took about two hours to get Bilbo outside his house because it, had a very, <laughs> it was one of these text adventure <laughs> games where you had to type what you wanted the character to do. Yes. But obviously the computer had like an ounce of memory. So if, like, yeah. you know, kind of like, if you typed anything, like, Bilbo open front door, no, <laughs> you can't do that here. That, you know, that was a, you know, if Bilbo was in the kitchen, make toast, no, you can't do that here. You could do nothing anywhere. But you were expected to kind of like get the gold back from the dragon. And you were typing it all. But it's like basically writing a novel that didn't want to be written. (laughs) He said, as though any novel ever wanted to be written. (laughs) They all don't want to be written. Yeah. (laughs) It was good training really, wasn't it? Yeah. When did you start um, writing, Christopher? You've you've obviously written quite a few books. Incredibly prolific. I can't think there must be like another Christopher Edge in a parallel universe who sends his finished copies across. (laughs) I would love that. 
and I'd just get the royalties. That'd be really nice. That'd be really nice. I, I was on a quest for a job where I could get the chance to lead all the time. That was my mm-hmm. thing. You know, obviously, you know, the best thing in life is leading. I wanted a job that let me do that. Mm-hmm. And I was tricked into the career of teaching by the film Dead Poet Society. <laughs> and I thought, if you become an English teacher, children will you know, stand mm. on tables and start yes. reading poetry and be inspired. And I got a job in a secondary school in Sheffield. Mm-hmm. And the only furniture-related bit of inspiration I ever managed to impart was actually shouting, put the chair down, Wesley! <laughs> before he blamed the person sitting next to him. So I lasted a very short amount of time as a teacher. Right. And then basically got a job as an educational publisher. I just basically got to read loads of brilliant children's books and then decide which ones I wanted to add to the list and wow. beg some money off my bosses and then make offers to them. And one of my, the one that kind of inspired me, and I apologise for this, Frank, was a book called Millions by Frank Cotter Boy. So it's leaving that. I am sorry. <laughs> you didn't have any books out then, Nadi. So. <laughs> but no, that I'm was teasing. it. I, I remember kind of like reading this and just falling in love with it. But not just falling in love with the voice and the character, it was falling in love with the ambition of it. So it was a story mm. about saints and a story about grief and loss. And that was like, this was in the early 2000s. And it was a bit of a golden period. Because like, we had so many great books on the list loads of different things it reconnected that bit of my brain that when i was a kid it used to be writing stories and i started writing on the train to and from work wow. and then i get to the weekend and i type it all up oh, wow. and this is a crazy thing i used to write on the train 500 words in a notebook go in there 500 words getting back i sit in an office in the bottom of my garden to do my life now if i get a thousand words by the end of the day i'm like Yes, <laughs> I used to do on my commute. So, that's I don't amazing. know what's gone wrong. So that's that, that was what inspired me to start writing, really. So that, it was kind of reconnecting with children's books. Yeah. yeah. Twenty years ago, that came out. Twenty years this coming March. You've written some non-fiction as well, Christopher. We should say you have written some writing guides. Yeah, I've written kind of like book called How to Write Your Best Story Ever and How to Be a Young Writer, and that kind of came from me when I go into schools. I'm very big on kind of demystifying writing and kind of making it feel something that everyone can do or everyone's got the right to do. I went to this kind of oddly comprehensive school and we never had author visits. I don't remember the single author visit. The first author I met was in my local comic book shop and it was Neil Gaiman. And it was meeting him. I was like 14 years old. I, I'd bunked off school to go to this signing. I got in so much trouble. Uh, but I'd, I kind of bunked off school because I'd seen that he was doing this signing session at my local comic book shop in, in Manchester. I had it all worked out. I took my school bag to school, oh. Yeah, went out at lunchtime, caught the bus into Manchester, queue up, I thought, like, get it signed, and I'll be back yeah. home. My mum won't even know I've not been in school in the afternoon. And yeah. then I joined the end of the queue that <sighs> snaked down Oxford Road. And you're still and, there now. You know, <laughs> yes. I was there till about seven in the evening. Oh, oh my God. No. I, yeah. And I got to the front of the queue and I got my comic book signed. And I don't remember what Neil Gaiman said to me, but I remember looking at him, this man in front of me signing this story and thinking, you're an ordinary person. And mm. you've written this book that I loved, this story that mm. I loved that kind of sparked my imagination. And I thought, I'm an ordinary person. Maybe one day I can, I can write stories. So, wow. 
that is the kind of spark of kind of trying to light these kind of creative lighting books. It's kind yeah. of saying to everyone, this is your light to make stuff up, to create stories. Because mm. I presume you do lots and lots of stall visits, Christopher, I'm guessing. I, I do a, a, a fair few, yeah. Kind of, I'm, I'm on, it's weird because my books kind of straddle kind of mm. primary and secondary. So I kind of like, sometimes I'm going into primary school mode, sometimes I'm going to secondary yeah. school mode. It's funny as well because, you know, there's only like a year difference between them, but... Mm-hmm. You walk into a secondary school, you've got to kind of put a different head on them when you go into it's a, a different primary universe. school sometimes. Yeah, yeah, that's it a different totally is, that's, yeah. yeah, that's like a Christopher Edge story. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> and we should talk a little bit about, because Escape Room has just been a phenomenal hit. You must be chuffed to bits. Yeah, no, that's been, that's kind of like amazed me, really. Kind yeah, of, uh, it's, it's massive. What was, what's been lovely about that is kind of it's happened really organically yeah you know it came out and you know some people said nice things about it and things but then people told people and other people yeah. told people so it's a real word of mouthing which is lovely to be part of it's also kind of scary though it's kind of like how do you get that back in how do you get that lightning in that the jar again, again? so yeah yeah. yeah so that's been that's been interesting it kind of showed me that there's this hunger for for these kind of stories that had this excitement yeah we talk a lot about leading for pleasure i think it's just about putting those stories in front of children that are going to grab them you know the, yeah. the Grimwoods or the you know the kind of the wonder Brothers or who whatever it's finding those light ones that connect and something about escape and just connected with some, some people and it seemed to kind of like, I always seem to get these flurries after <clears throat> summer holidays. So I used to think that was people coming back after the summer holiday and saying what they've read. So yeah, yeah that's been that's been a nice experience. Well, I think because your books, like they're so, they're so kinetic and they're really, I think, I think sometimes there's a dissonance between kind of books that people deem to be worthwhile and then books that are very funny or kind of full of action almost immediately start off with like a black mark against them because people assume they can't also be really well written and worthwhile which yours are and and kids aren't idiots you know they know th- that too i think that's yeah. it it's also that kind of like not talking down to your audience yeah. you know kind of skate them you know it's the roller coaster adventure but it's a book of ideas as well you know kind of like so mm. without any spoils or whatever you know there's a there's section in escape room where Amy is playing chess on the first kind of escape room she goes and she's playing chess against a chess playing automaton and every single move of that chess match that she plays against the automaton is based on the chess match that uh, Gary Kasparov played against Deep Blue which Amazing. was the first time oh, that a, a human was ever defeated so wow because I, th- I think that's the other thing because children yeah a big the leaders if they like something they'll the lead it and you need to give yeah. them those depths depths they can go diving down into and discover new things every time they go back but it's also yeah, not absolutely. just about immediate rereading is i think what's really wonderful about writing for the age group that we've all chosen to write for is that you know your your mind is still very malleable and those books really if they're good they really stay and then in later life you know in times of bad or whatever or you have your own kids you can revisit them and still be nourished by them and still be cheered by them and still be challenged by them. I mean, I remember rereading Alan Garner or Narnia over and over when I was a kid. But what's really great is being able to go back to them now and oh. like there being like a magic tunnel back to that beginning of, you know, that happy time. Absolutely. Um, when I was reading Black Hole Cinema Club, I kept thinking, hmm, I'd love to see this actually 
on the big screen as a film. And then I was like, or would I? I don't know, because you're having such fun with kind of the genres. I don't know if I want to. Is there, I mean, you probably definitely can't say, but is that something you'd like to see? Would you like to see one of your books on the big screen? I would love to see one of my books on the big screen. I'm just an author standing in front of a film and just saying, <laughs> please, is that one of my books? No, I think if Spielberg washes up on the island of Berlin, you know, <gasps> just, just press a copy into his hands and that'd be brilliant. It is a love, well, there's a, there's a lot of love for Spielberg. Yeah, there really is. There's a lot of Spielberg love in it. That's the other challenge of Light and Black Hole Cinema Club because in a way, you, you can't assume though that the leaders have read any of the, have watched any of the films that you might be... No, exactly. ...had to. So it was quite quite a tight loop at times to kind of you know, mm. have these little kind of homages to kind of Spielberg or Lidley Scott or whoever, but not in is a way. Is that why the hero is called Lucas? That's a George Lucas, yeah, right. that is a George Lucas. I didn't pick up on that. But I think you've done it in such a way because you, you've kind of, they are recognisable environments, you know, like the kind of James Bondy yeah. snowstorm that you kind of land in in the first, the first chapter and kind of the the enemy's lair and all the rest of it even if the reader hasn't watched those films they'll still just by the osmosis of kind of pop culture i think they'll kind of know what that is well christopher thank you so much for coming to visit us um we should pester you i guess for some books that you might want to leave behind Uh, well i will leave thunder and lightnings by john matt with you but also as i was traveling through the space-time continuum obviously you know uh, past, present, and future will all allow me at the time. So I actually managed to grab a hold of a book from the future, uh, a book called Ooh. The Long Shoes by Tom Percival that actually isn't doesn't come oh. into existence until May this year. So it comes out in May. Okay. And it's about this boy yeah. called Will. He's got the long mm. shoes because his shoes leak and they let in water. And he lives with his dad, who is split up from his mum mm. and. His dad's not got much money. So it's just a bit of an insight into one boy's a bit of a rough life, really, and how he basically mm. goes through that life trying to cope. I think lots of time when I, when I read books, they either get rid of the parents straight away or they're about mm. issues. And this is about, you know, it's about the issue of kind of, you know, cost of living crisis. It's about the issue of, like, you know, child poverty and things. But it's not done in a patronising it's not the point of it it's about one boy growing up it but it doesn't mm. tie in sugarcoat it but he's also a boy who's very good at mm. art and i think it's based a lot on tom's own experiences growing up because tom uh mm. he's kind of an artist illustrator and at one point in the story that the, the boy sees he sees this owl which is kind of a transformative moment for him and there's a picture of it which is just the most amazing thing it just it rings with truth so I think I'm, I'm going to leave you that mm. for the album because that was it's, it's Amazing. a lovely story. I can't wait to I, dig I best into climb that. Back. Do I climb up this ladder to get back through the tear or? What do you reckon, Frank? Well, uh, what I'd really like is if you take this mastic glue gun <laughs> and when you get back in, if you just turn back and fix the hole. Do you know that would be handy? Because I'm worried that, you know, it's very nice that you came through from Eccles. But worse things could come, like from maybe Didsbury or somewhere. <laughs> the dark dimension of Didsbury, yes. Okay, well, I will kind of like, I will I will yeah. earn my keep and do some DIY as I exit the island of Brilliant. Yeah, that would uh, be great. Do you want a le- do you want a, do you want a leg up? That- Should we form like a human ladder or something? Come on, and try and, come on. Yeah. hoist yourself up. That's it. See you later, Christopher. Bye-bye. It's been a real pleasure. Bye. Good luck Bye. with everything. Bye. Bye. See you later. Bye. See you later. Bye. Bye. Bye.
that was that was enlightening. See what happens when you don't get on the DIY front. Authors plop down <laughs> through a space-time continuum. I'm so intimidated by him writing books on the train. Horrible. Yeah, was, I know. That was a dark moment. Was it? You look. You did get. You did look shaky <laughs> from that moment on. Don't worry, Frank. What, what's your word count at the minute? <laughs> the sigh. Just like going to that. bed with a crushing sense of failure every night, and and waking mm. up thinking, tonight I'll be going to bed with a crushing sense of failure. Ah, <laughs> oh, well, that's how you know you're an author, right? Absolutely. <laughs> there are some people listening who look, look up to you as an inspiration. We need more of Christopher's motivational you can do it vibe. Not this, hey kids, go to bed with a crushing sense of failure vibe. (laughs) It's a downer. Do you know what we need to do? We need to look at some shells and see if we can tune into Emily Drabble from Brook Trust. Here we go. Hi Frank, hi Nadia. On these dark winter nights I've been doing a lot of reading so... I'm hopefully coming down the line in this conch shell to tell you about the books I've been enjoying. As usual, I'll deliver them by hot air balloon and I'm going to add some homemade biscuits as a special New Year's treat as well. So, I'll start with a picture book. The Pandas Who Promised by Rachel Bright and Jim Field, published by Hachette. Popo and Ketu are two adorable red pandas. And when I say adorable, I mean they are the cutest ever illustrators of red pandas ever. Popo is cautious, but Ketu is wild and wants to go down the mountain despite their mother's strict instructions to stay put. Of course, Ketu doesn't listen and goes down. Their mother also told them to stay together, so Popo is forced to be really brave and follow. Lucky she does as a predatory leopard is down there. The story is told in delightful rhyming text and it will suit four, five, six-year-olds best, I think, as it's quite long. The illustrations by Jim Field are so breathtakingly gorgeous, you're going to want to read this one again and again. Now I want to tell you about Sophia Ahmed's new series, Time Travellers Adventure Calling, published by Little Tiger. Sahana, Ayan and Mia are three kids on a trip to the Houses of Parliament in London. They're really fascinated by all the history, but then somehow, so weirdly, Sahana's mobile phone time travels them all to 1911 and right into a suffragist's protest at Westminster Hall. Sahana had thought everyone in British history was white, but now she meets a group of women, including Lolita Roy, women with brown skin like her, who have generally been overlooked by history, but played an important part in gaining women's right to vote. So, we have a high-speed time travel adventure. We have history. We have this fabulous introduction to the political system for 8 to 10-year-olds. It's full of all sorts of vital nuggets of empowering information that should spark all sorts of questions. And I'm really excited for the next in the series. A bit of horror now. Fright Bite in the Dreadwood series by Jennifer Killick, published by Farshaw. I've been wanting to read the Dreadwood series for a long time and here's the proof. I've gone straight in at book number five, Fright Bite, which I discovered is perfectly fine in terms of the story, but I do now want to read books one to four. So I found myself in the company of Club Loser, five really hilarious friends who've obviously been through a lot of terrifying adventures together. This time though, all is well. They are going to an escape room to celebrate Colette's birthday, 
or is it Orwell? Something is very off indeed. How does the escape room know their greatest fear? And how about these gigantic poisonous biting rats that are locked in with them? So it's scary, but it's funny scary. A bit like Goosebumps. The dialogue is so fresh and so funny, I can see why children aged 9 to 12 get really obsessed by this series. So it's probably best to start with book one, Dreadwood. But I enjoyed going in at number five very much, so you could go in for anyone in the series. And now let me tell you about Safia's War by Hiba Noor Khan, published by Anderson. Frank and Nadia, you will really love this book and it will be perfect for you to read on the island. It's the truly fascinating story about a piece of hidden history, hidden to me anyway, about the role of the Grand Mosque in Paris in helping Jewish people escape the Nazis in the Second World War. It's a lyrical tale of bravery and compassion and it's so beautifully told through the eyes of 11-year-old Safia, a map-obsessed bookworm whose father runs the mosque. It puts me in mind of reading Judith Carr's When Hitler Stole Pink Rabbit. Um, I loved that as a child and I particularly loved the child's eye view of how adults deal with such difficult times and how they try to protect children, but heartbreakingly, they sometimes can't. It's very well written and Safia herself jumps off the page as a brilliant character. I would so recommend reading this book and it is very well deservedly long-listed for the Branford Bowes Award this year, which I'm helping to judge. And last of all, Look Out Hungry Line by Paul Delaney, published by HarperCollins. Anyone who knows me knows I'm a big fan of board books. I like reading to babies and it's never too early to start sharing books with babies. I don't come across enough great board books, so I really like this Lift the Flap one by Paul Delaney. The lion who's hungry has such a cute, wicked smile as he goes in search of snacks. First a monkey behind some green leaves, then a zebra, then a buffalo, onto an elephant and finally a hopping hare. It's funny, it's interactive, it's gorgeous, it looks sturdy, it looks cheerable, it looks great for a baby. So that's it. Happy reading, Nadia and Frank, and I hope that you are feeling nice on the island. Oh, it's always a pleasure to hear from Emily. I'm glad that she didn't hasn't given up on us, Frank. She still knows that we're here. She's still sending us recommendations. Yeah, and that people are out there still writing books. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, what was it you said? Not feeling that gnawing sense of despair that you go to bed with every night? No, I didn't say gnawing sense of despair. Okay. I had crushing sense of failure. Oh, despair sorry. is like anyone Spes- can go with despair. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, thank you, Emily. And thank you. We should say a big thank you to Christopher Edge for putting up with us in our very January state. <laughs> Uh, he was a fan- he was a fantastic guest, and I strongly recommend uh, getting your paws on Black Hole Cinema Club when it comes out in March. Um, yes, who else we... do we need to say thank you to, Frank? We need to say thank you to the little feathery genius, Jeffrey Bird. We do, and we need. He to... makes it all happen. He really does, and we need to say a big thank you to the ukulele off trio, as well as Emily Jabble from Boot Trust. And should also mention a previous island guest, Ed Veer. You remember him, Frank? Oh, I do remember him. He's brilliant. Uh, He's done a fantastic uh, programme that was on Radio 4 about the 
fantastic Jan Pantowski, I never say that name correctly, uh, of Megan Mod fame and Haunted House fame. And well, I don't need to really explain who he is, do I? So catch that. No, not at all. But you might want to say that that programme was also made by the feathery genius himself, Jeffrey Bird. It was. It was a feathery genius, Jeff Bird and Edvir collab, I believe the kids say. So yeah. <laughs> so check it out. And if you've been listening this far, well, I can only applaud you and say you're a braver person. <laughs> you're a braver person than most. And we hope that you will tune in again. Bye, everyone. Take it away, ukulele. Take it away, ukulele. Oof. <laughs> Say it wrong again. <laughs> when will you say this correctly, Brant? Say it after me. Ukulele. <laughs> Just repeat the words after me. Ukulele. Ukulele. Of. Oof. Trio. Trio. There you go. It wasn't so Take difficult. it away, ukulele trio. Take it off. Make ukulele it stop. Trio. Woo! Make it stop, Jeff. Make this all stop. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>